thank you for praying with me just now. We're going to give attention to the Word of God. Let's turn together to Daniel chapter nine, chapter one. Sorry, I had selection from chapter nine last week. Daniel chapter one as our Old Testament reading this morning. Continue looking at both Romans 13 and 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 this morning. Conclude our meditation on that. But I'd like to read to you uh, as our Old Testament reading, Daniel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 13. And this is the word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel proposed and purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let the, them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as, I, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. This is God's word. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Uh, Romans 13, I'd like to read again to us the first four verses, and then we're going to turn over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and read a couple of verses there. Romans chapter 13, we've been meditating on this portion of Scripture now for a couple of weeks, and would like to conclude our, our look at this, these, uh, these sections of Scripture. Let me read to you Romans uh, 13, verses 1 through 4, as this is the Word of God. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? 
do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, First Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2. I'd like to read to you just, as, just two verses. Uh, verse 13 and 14. First Peter chapter 2. Again, this is God's word. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are wrestling this morning with uh, very relevant things, very challenging things, things about which your people have not always agreed. And Lord, we are mindful of that. We want to therefore be patient and um, be wise. And we know that this comes as you would instruct us from your word and that we would look into it, and letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that we would come to a sound understanding of your word and a a right application of it to our lives. And so we, we look to you, Father, and we confess that what is faithful and true to your word is what would bind our hearts and our consciences. And we ask, O Lord, that you would lead us into that this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I do recognize that some of you have likely had an uneasy tension in your minds as uh, you've listened to the last two sermons on Romans 13. Um, Some have become convinced that we are to be subject to the governing authorities, even if they are evil and act evilly. But yet we have something inside of us that tells us that certainly the Lord can't be calling us to be submissively led like sheep to the slaughter. Like like we have to take with a smile whatever the governing authorities might do. Like we're not allowed to do anything in the face of justice. Now I've tried to prevent you from uh, hearing that's that's the view that, that we find in Scripture as along the way I've made a couple of key statements to signal that we, in fact, don't lie down like dogs, right? I I read you some quotes from the church fathers who were living under tyrants far more heinous than any of the tyrants our nation has ever been ruled by. And they were, we see, pleading their case with those tyrants. They were engaging the governing authorities. They were using very persuasive arguments to secure justice and to obtain greater freedom for themselves. That's what we heard them doing. Now, Christians aren't called to take tyranny with a smile. But what I have been trying to emphasize, for, for sure, is that neither should we act like rebels who instantly dispose of God-appointed authorities on our own individual whim. And as Americans, we often talk that way. 
unafraid to disparage and to dishonor authorities whenever we wish, wherever we might find them. Uh, Paul and Peter told Christians to honor the king, the very king who would lop off their heads for being Christians. Our ancient church fathers went to great lengths to communicate their willingness to respect the authorities and the authorities even that often persecuted them. But we, we have no problem, don't we, as Americans, expressing open contempt for our governing authorities and even flaunting disobedience to laws that we don't like. And maybe we think that that is what it means to be a good American. I, I, when I, what I've wanted to do in the past couple of weeks is for us to see that it, it isn't the word of God that teaches us to think that way. What I've been trying to address is the tendency in, inside of us that moves us in the direction of autonomy, of self-rule, and even of anarchy that is the very heartbeat of sin and the lie of the devil. Now, there, there are more popular ideas about what it means to be an American that are out there that actually excuse and promote that kind of approach to authority. And Christians should not want to be identified as rebels who scoff at governing authorities. May it never be. With that being said, this morning I want to talk about the truth that Christians should be known as ardent defenders of righteousness and promoters of justice for all. While we are called as Christians not to resist the evil person, not to resist the governing authorities, we should not turn, we should not turn that idea into uh, a passive indifference to evil and injustice. The point I've been trying to make from Romans 12 and 13 and 1 Peter 2 is that we conquer evil with good. That is, in fact, a, there is, in fact, a way to resist the evil and injustice of governing authorities while, at the same time, we are still being subject to them. And to understand that, we must make careful distinctions. Distinctions, I believe, that we find in the Word of God. And I, I want to focus, then, on what resistance is um, and what it is not, biblically speaking. So let's just dive into this. First of all, Paul, in Romans 13, verse 2, speaks of an ungodly resistance to authorities, Right? And that ungodly resistance to authorities that Paul is speaking of there, it does not include disobeying laws and orders that would make us violate God's will for us. This includes, of course, violations of his holy law. Now, Nazi leaders in Hitler's Germany um, ordered soldiers under their charge to murder Jews and other minorities, didn't they? And that was a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Those commandments should not have been obeyed by anyone, even though it might very well have cost the person who disobeyed them their life. Now, one of the great examples of this in Scripture is the Hebrew midwives. 
who you might remember in Exodus 1 were commanded by Pharaoh to kill all of the newborn Hebrew male children. But Exodus chapter 1 verse 17 says that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now secondly, we, we cannot obey authorities when they trespass upon the government and the work of the church. When, when the Jewish authorities forbid the apostles from preaching in Jesus' name, what did Peter say? Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he said that we ought to obey God rather than men. Jesus had made them his witnesses, and they could not stop witnessing to the gospel, even if it meant prison, even if it meant death. Now thirdly, we cannot obey authorities when it would allow them to substantially encroach on family government. The Lord has given the responsibility to rear and to discipline children to parents alone. We must insist then that our role as parents not be infringed upon by outside authorities. Again, God has established three different spheres of government. He has established family government, giving the rod of correction to parents. He has established church government, giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the elders of the church. And he has established civil government, giving the sword to the authorities in that sphere. So if someone attempts to violate the order of any of those, we have a duty to disobey them, even if they are a lawful authority in one of those other spheres. So clearly, Paul, Paul's command to be subject to the governing authorities and not to resist them is not absolute. I've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, but we're fleshing this out this morning. Other places in Scripture qualify and fill out for us the way that we should understand the command of God in Romans uh, chapter 13. Clearly, it does not mean that we submit to every law or order, because sometimes those laws and those orders conflict directly with God's revealed will. And we know what we must do in those cases, right? The question that is most on our minds this morning is what do we do when the governing authorities, they govern the affairs of society, which is their calling, when they govern the affairs of society in an unjust, unlawful way. What do we do then? And again, we're going to have to make careful distinctions from these passages of Scripture uh, before we will be able to see that there is a way to resist the authorities while we are still being subject to them. It might sound like a contradiction, but let me explain. And I have 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 specifically in mind just now. And you look there. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. A and I showed you, the, the Greek word there is creation. Submit yourself to every creation of man, and he's talking about forms of government, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. Again, as Peter clearly indicates, civil governments are human creations, and they take different forms. Some have kings as the supreme authority, while others have 
uh, kings and governors as the lower magistrate. Now, I'm going to be using that term magistrate. And um, the reason I, uh, moving forward this morning, the reason I choose to use that word is it is, it's the most versatile um, English word that we have. And it's historically been used by the church to understand how the church interfaces with the civil government. And the magistrate refers to a government official who has been set apart by taking an oath of office whereby they assume authority to act in an official capacity. Well, some governments like ours, a, a constitutional republic, um, we have different levels of magistrates. We have the executive administrators like presidents and governors. Uh, we have lawmakers like our legislatures in Congress. We have law enforcers, being the judicial system, and the law enforcement officers um, who work um, wielding the sword. And they are, in our system of government, separate, co-equal branches of government. And we have to consider that, then, when we hear what Peter says here about being subject to every human creation. Being subject will look differently for Christians based on the form of man-made government that they live under. Now, I read to you some quotes in recent weeks from Justin Martyr and from Tertullian, uh, second century church fathers who were living under the dictatorship of the Roman Caesars. And those Roman Caesars, you remember, were literally worshipped as gods. And what I read to you was them resisting Caesar and his officers. But their resistance was very submissive. It was in subjection to them still. They did not write to subvert the authority of Caesar, but rather to persuade Caesar with their exemplary lives and their passionate, passionate and logical arguments. They were pleading with him and the lower magistrates to change their minds about the rights that they extended to Christians. And they had the right to do that in that system. That system of government, however, though, that they lived under didn't afford them very many rights beyond that without becoming obnoxious rebels to the state at the cost of their lives. And we would also notice that neither them are ancient church fathers, nor the apostles saw it as their calling to overthrow governments. But they did very respectfully address evil in government to promote change as much as the system allowed. Now, now many of those uh, early church fathers did lose their lives. The apostles lost their lives. But it wasn't because they passionately and submissively pleaded with Caesar to change his mind, but because Rome wanted to stamp out Christians. What can you do? But the way we are subject, brothers and sisters, to our man-made government, it will look very different for us. Why? Because we live under a different form of man-made government. Think about this. By law, our man-made government allows us to resist governing authorities in significant ways. That, that, that means that we can resist and be subject to human create the human creation of government at the same time, without making ourselves 
subversive enemies of that man-made government. Now think about it. As Christians, we resist the 1973 Supreme Court decision that is infamously known as Roe versus Wade. Now that decision essentially made abortion the law of the land. And we resist it by denouncing it as evil. We resist it by joining in peaceful protest. We resist it by giving money to and volunteering to support pro-life organizations. We resist it by electing only pro-life candidates who will only appoint pro-life judges. But we do all of that in lawful submission to our man-made government that defends our right to do those very things. We submit as we resist by not deputizing ourselves as law enforcement officers. Right? We, we, don't, we don't assume that authority to ourselves going around uh, rounding up abortionists to put them in, on trial for murder in our backyards. No, we submit as we resist by using the legal means of our, the system of government and what it affords us to reverse that wicked decision. Now, we can submit and we can resist at the same time. The, the resistance to the authorities Paul is talking about in Romans 13 is where we uh, simply dismiss their authority over us. Where, where we act as if we are a law and an authority unto ourselves. As if we acted like we had the, the authority to bomb abortion clinics, to wipe out all of the workers inside, because we are the arm of God's judgment. That's the kind of, uh, that is an extreme example, but that is an, an illustration of a kind of resistance where we take to ourselves an authority that God has not appointed to us. No, we submit as we resist by using the authorities that exist within the man-made system in order to promote righteousness and justice. And, uh, let me give you some biblical examples of this taking place. You think of Joseph in Genesis. In, in Genesis. Uh, Joseph was unjustly imprisoned, and he got out of prison but not by doing nothing. Not by starting a prison riot or burrowing under the prison wall. He, no, he asked one of the officials in Pharaoh's court to remember the good that Joseph did for him once he was restored to his position at Pharaoh's side. Now David, here's another example. He resisted King Saul's order when Saul was trying to, to have him killed. And he did it not by rising up against Saul to kill him. And David, we see, had multiple opportunities to do that. And both times he said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed king. No, David resisted Saul's orders by running away. By leaving and, and waiting for God to take Saul out of the way by another God-appointed governing authority, which the Lord did through the Philistines. We could also think of the prophet Daniel, whom we read to you about him there in Daniel chapter 1, serving under King Nebuchadnezzar in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And the king ordered Daniel to eat 
the apportioned food and drink. But Daniel and his, his uh, other Jewish brothers believed that that food would defile them. Daniel didn't just submit to the king's wishes, did he? He submitted and he resisted at the same time. How did he do it? He asked the lower magistrate. He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to eat another diet under certain conditions. Now we could also think about the example of Mordecai in the book of Esther. He had learned that that a high official in the Persian court, a man named Haman, that he had persuaded the king to decree by law that the Jews in the Persian Empire all be destroyed. And what did Mordecai do? Well, he didn't rally a, uh, an armed rebellion among the Jews to overthrow uh, the king and his empire or to, or to bring Haman down. No, Mordecai submitted to the system that existed, and he resisted that evil plot by enlisting Esther, the king's wife. And he used her, and she used her position to expose and to bring down that plot. They didn't just submit. They submitted and they resisted. Last week I reminded you of how Paul had been unjustly imprisoned and unlawfully held captive for two years without getting his legal due as a Roman citizen. And what did Paul do? He resisted those injustices by submitting to the form of government that granted him the right to appeal to Caesar for justice. When he met with injustice and lawlessness in one part of the system, he sought relief and protection from another part of it. In other words, he submitted to the man-made government and resisted the corruption that was in it at the same time time. Now, friends, I think there's a popular misconception that what I'm describing here from Scripture is radically different from the way that the United States of America got its start as an independent nation. Now, maybe we imagine that the war for independence was started by brave individual citizens who decided King George III and Parliament's laws were unjust and finally they just said, I'm, we're not listening to you anymore. And then they armed themselves for war with the help of their neighbors. But that's not actually what happened. The march towards independence was actually led and spearheaded by the duly elected governing authorities in the colonies, whose right it was to rule. And that right to rule had been granted by a charter from the king under the British Constitution. The citizens of the British colonies were supposed to have the full rights of British citizens that was recognized by the British Constitution. And it was the magistrates within the colonies that were to protect those rights under the king's charters. And that is the way the system of that man-made government was to work. But British Parliament started exerting unconstitutional authority over the colonies in the year 1763 uh, to help pay for the French and Indian War. Yes, we we see individual citizens groaning about the, the unconstitutional actions that had been taken, but it was the lower magistrates 
It was the king recognized and the king empowered local authorities in the colonies who led the resistance. And they had to. Because they had been charged by their public oaths of office to defend the king's charter and the British constitution, even if that meant the king was the one violating it. And so the move towards independence was not a rebellion by Joe Schmo Farmer and his neighbors who deputized themselves to make war. No, it was a resistance carried out by the lawful magistrates sanctioned by the British Constitution. As lawfully elected or appointed magistrates, they had the authority to wield the sword of justice to protect the citizens that were under their charge, and they did it. Of course, there were groups of citizens who took a more inflammatory, uh, a, law, a more lawless approach. And when they did that, we see that it, it only made the situation worse. Success came by the proper authorities in the colonies resisting by submitting to the system that they were duty-bound to uphold. And they didn't take up arms as the first order of business. They didn't sink to the level of speaking evil of the king and the higher magistrates who were offending the Constitution. If you look at the historical evidence, they went to great lengths to use the system to redress their grievances over 12 long years. And there's this great line about that fact in the Declaration of Independence, where it reads, in every stage of these oppressions, addressing uh, to the king the, the, the list of grievances that they had uh, about his abuse of power. And it says there, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated re petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. And you see in, in these, the documents that are left to us in history, the last thing that they wanted to do was break with the king and the mother country that they loved. Even as things were about to boil over in July of 1774, listen to the way the Continental Congress spoke of King George III. First, we are resolved that his most sacred majesty, George III, King of Great Britain is our liege, lawful and rightful sovereign, and that it is our indispensable duty to the utmost of our power by all constitutional means to maintain and to support his crown and dignity. That is our greatest happiness and glory to have been born British subjects, and that we wish nothing more ardently than to live and die as such. For years, Letters flowed from the governing authorities in the colonies to the king and to the parliament, filled with humble petitions. Congress wrote to the king on July 6, 1775, We for ten years incessantly and ineffectually besieged the throne as supplicants. We reasoned, we remonstrated with parliament in the most mild and decent language. Now, back in Great Britain, men of high positions, like former Prime Minister William Pitt, 
a highly respected man, pleaded with the king and with parliament for the just cause of the colonies. There were cities in, in England that were enlisted by the colonies to plead with the king and parliament on their behalf, including the city of London and the city of Bristol. And finally, after patient pleading and submission to the system of man-made government, our lawly elected magistrates in the colonies finally declared their intent to defend themselves, even wielding the, sto- the sword that had constitutionally been given to them. Now, my main point is that the resistance was carried out by people submitting to the system of man-made government, using legitimate governing authorities to seek justice and righteousness from the governing authorities that had gone rogue. When Paul says in Romans 13, verse 4, that the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain, he uses a sword as a metaphor. Swords are lethal, right? Which means metaphorically, that governing authorities have the power to enforce the law all the way up to and including with the use of lethal force. Governing authorities have the power to enforce what is good by punishing what is evil. And this is what we might often miss, is that often one governing authority finds itself in a position where it has to use force to enforce the law against other governing authorities who have become lawless. And that is their duty and their calling to do that very thing. That is their God-appointed job. And our nation's founding fathers, I believe, were warranted to use the sword against the higher governing authority to coerce them to do what was good. And that is what led to the war for independence. But please, what I want you to see, that is an entirely different thing than the average citizen in our state, for example, making himself judge over the governor's actions and deciding he is simply going to disobey her or subvert her authority. That is not what our founding fathers did, and that is not what the Bible teaches us to do. We can resist, but we resist by submitting to the mechanisms within our man-made government that are there to check evil. And that makes our resistance lawful. It makes our resistance actually a dutiful submission to the man-made system that we live in and under. So what do we do when the governor issues an order that we think is unconstitutional? Well, doing nothing is not a good option, is it? Going rogue and setting up our own government of one is not a faithful option either, is it? Instead, we should submit to our man-made government to resist lawfully. We enlist the help of officials who have power as elected or appointed magistrates of the government. We respectfully plead with them to check abuses of power. We file suits in court, if need be, where judges have the duty and the power to overturn unconstitutional actions, laws, and orders. 
and we enlist and we support the election of candidates who care about righteousness, justice, and the rule of law. And in our present situation, just now, where, where government actions rightly concern us, we are already seeing our system work as people resist by how? Submitting to the form of man-made government that we have in front of us. The governor may not think as highly as she ought to about religious liberty. But praise God, the highest law enforcement officer of the United States of America, Attorney General William Barr, he does think very highly of it. He has said that the Constitution does allow some temporary restrictions on our liberties that would not be tolerated normally under normal circumstances. But he is ready, and he has said this in recent weeks, he is ready to act if it appears houses of worship are having a special burden placed upon them that isn't also placed on other places where people congregate as things begin to open up. So I don't think we are forced to choose between submitting to the governing authorities or resisting to protect our rights. There's a way for us to do both at the same time. Governor Brown is not a king. She's not our king. She is subject to other magistrates. And our man-made system provides us with local magistrates even who can fight for righteousness and justice on our behalf. And that is happening. Sometimes a local magistrate, like a sheriff, will refuse to enforce a law that they deem to be unconstitutional. And a sheriff gets to do that because he has been put into office and sworn an oath not to obey whatever governors come up with, but to uphold and defend the Constitution. And sometimes that happens as part of the system. And as that happens sometimes as part of the system, they will have to uh, lawfully check unlawful uses of power. And that means that we can submit to one governing power while we're resisting another one at the same time, and it's totally lawful. It's totally supported by the system of man-made government that we live under. And this is actually, this happened last week uh, when two sheriffs in the state of Arizona in two different counties, said that they would not enforce some of the governor's orders on citizens in their county. If, if they were unconstitutional, they would not enforce them. Is that civil disobedience? I would suggest to you, no, it's not. Because they didn't take an oath of office to obey the governor, but to uphold and defend the Constitution. And in this way, the lower magistrate can constitutionally Check the higher magistrate. Is it civil disobedience to resist an unconstitutional order of one magistrate when there is another magistrate who has immediate jurisdiction over us and says that that order is unconstitutional, that it is unenforceable? I would submit to you, no, it's not. Because we are still submitting to our man-made government and the way that our government works. 
civil disobedience in our system is a little bit more complicated than it is in other systems. Civil disobedience in our system is more akin to when an individual decides to work outside of the system in order to get justice. And really, that should be a last resort that is only considered after every other legal means has completely been exhausted. And even then, it ought to be done with fear and trembling. Now, in light of the governor's uh, reopening plan that we saw this, this last week, it is now clear to me as an elder and to the session, uh, the session of elders of this church that our governor appears to be planning to place a special burden on our worship that is not like the burden that she's placing on other like establishments. But we, we see a lawful way forward in, in subjection to our man-made government, which we will soon communicate to the congregation about. Now, as I wrap up uh, this morning, uh, this, this might disappoint some of you, but I've decided not to get into all of all of the what-if questions that we might want to ask right now. What, what if they come for our guns? Or what if they want full control over our children? Or what if they start rounding up Christians and putting us into prison? Now, friends, praise God we aren't there yet. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Jesus said, right? What we should be concerned with now is overcoming the evil that is here right now today before it turns into the evil we fear might come tomorrow. Now somebody put these people in power, and that somebody was us. Us and our neighbors. Friends, it's us. We've been lulled to sleep by prosperity. We've been lulled to sleep by the ease of American life. We have fallen asleep to the fact that sin and evil are unceasing enemies. The truth is constantly under attack. The influence of God's word that once held sway over our nation is rapidly slipping away, and lawlessness is the consequence of that. And we need to own our part in that. If we are concerned, as we should be, about what we see, we will ask the Lord to make us serious about living as citizens of the kingdom of God. We will daily repent of our desire to get more of this world, which will only lead us into greed and covetousness, which will only lead us into lawlessness like we see everywhere else. We will see the great need for us to make known Jesus Christ the King. We will focus our lives and energy on that, knowing that we battle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the spiritual hosts of wickedness. And then, once we come to that realization, we will be able to honor and submit to the governing authorities, even as we might have to lawfully resist them. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, Lord, we are grateful that we have your word, Lord, and that we are not left in the dark. Father, that we are not left as orphans when Christ has ascended into heaven, but he has left us the Spirit who leads us into the truth. 
who illumines for us the mysteries of your word and and teaches us how to compare scripture with scripture, to uh, discern what is your good, perfect, and acceptable will for us. And Lord, that is what we want to be led into at this moment, where there is great difficulty experienced not only by your church, but by um, our the society that we live in as a whole. And Lord, let us be light bearers. Let us wave the banner of truth boldly, patiently, lovingly. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would use us both to uh, build the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to pursue and to secure justice among the kingdoms of men. And we ask for your grace and power in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close our time together this morning again, uh, saying the Lord's Prayer together, which I'll put on the screen for you overhead. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Go now with God's peace and blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.